A scapegoat remains effective as long as we believe in its guilt. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. How we be doing? I am very tired, thanks for asking. I'm like that tired, cracked out feeling. I'm in the process of moving, and it turns out when people say that moving is stressful they're not lying. (laughs) This is like the first time that I've coordinated a move myself and done all the adult-like things related to moving. And I don't, I don't know about this whole adult thing. I'm still trying to figure it out. So today we are diving deep into scapegoat abuse. Yes, scapegoating is a form of abuse And we are talking to, I am talking to, not we, but me, Rebecca Manville. So she is a therapist, she's an author, and she is the woman who deemed the the term, who coined the term scapegoat abuse, family scapegoat abuse. I have deemed her the queen of the scapegoats. This is a really, really damn good conversation. Even if you weren't the scapegoat of your family, you're still going to get a lot out of this. We talk about other things too, complex PTSD, uh, narcissistic abuse, cutting, going no contact with family, all the things. So I've shared my scapegoat origin story on the podcast before, but in case you haven't heard that, here's the Cliff Notes version. So at nine, I started to develop separation anxiety with my mom. It started with being not being able to spend go to sleepovers. I was always that girl who got sick right before it was time to go to bed. I know that a lot of y'all can relate to that. Uh, and then it escalated to me sleeping in my mom's bed every night while my dad slept in mine. One night I woke up in the middle of the night, absolutely terrified, feeling like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in my mom's bed. And that resulted in me sleeping in my mom's bed every night and my dad sleeping in my bed. So then after a few months of this, uh, at the recommendation of my pediatrician, my parents sent uh, me to see a child psychologist. And so that was the moment that I became the scapegoat, that I became the identified patient in the family. And no, not because my parents sought help. Clearly, I needed help, but the crime was what they failed to disclose to the therapist. So I remember as a teenager asking my mom, did you tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And she said, no, it, it didn't seem relevant. And I, I truly believe that that was her truth at that point in time. I don't think my parents were sitting around conspiring. How can we put all of this on Andrea so that we don't have to look at her shit? Like, I, I don't think that was what was going on. And so that's one thing that Rebecca really stresses about how this is not typically this intentional act to harm us but it is subconscious. Now, 
with that being said, though, that doesn't mean that the impact isn't detrimental as fuck. And a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people can't see how much being deemed a scapegoat as a kid has impacted their life as an adult. I always knew that I was the scapegoat. I was not oblivious to the fact that I was a scapegoat or the identified patient in the family. What I did not know, though, was the messages internalized as a result of that experience. So by the time I got to middle school, I was sleeping in my own bed again. I could go to a sleepover, but I did start to act in ways that were aligned with this scapegoat role, this identified patient role that was placed upon me by my parents. And this belief that I was inherently flawed, that was ingrained in me and took me as its hostage for years and years and years. So I no longer participate in this. I no longer play this scapegoat role. However, there are times where my family will try to make it seem like I'm still playing this role. This is a really common experience when we seek recovery. And I think that that can even happen with people who didn't play the scapegoat role as a kid, but as adults, if they are the only one that's seeking recovery, it's common to then be placed into that scapegoat role. So let's get the damn show on the road. First, thank you to everyone who got some shit show merch. How about the rest of y'all get some shit show merch? There is some really fun things in there, guys. If you are um, in 12 Steps, you have a sponsor, you have sponsees, this shop has the perfect, unique, fun recovery gifts that you should get, okay? So go to adultchildpodcast.com slash shop. I'll put it in the show notes. Two, how about you damn the join Patreon? This is where I host three weekly Zoom support groups with some real shit shows. This is a -a one-of-a-kind recovery community. You're not going to find this anywhere else. I came up with the perfect uh, tagline for the Patreon group. We talk about serious shit, but we don't take ourselves too seriously. What do you think? Do I need to work on that one? But it's, it's true. We will laugh. We will cry. Everyone is so vulnerable. Everyone has such a great sense of humor. This is some solid ass people. Solid ass. How about I never use that one? (laughs) So go damn the join Patreon. See show notes for a link to that. Next, give me a follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, at adultchildpod. Last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple or Spotify, specifically Apple. So last week I made a request Uh, I made a challenge to get to a thousand reviews by the end of uh, November. So when you're listening to this right now, if you listen on the day it's released, you got a day, okay? I just need five of you, okay? Do you want to have that on your conscience that you were the one person that uh, prevented me from from getting to this 1,000? I don't think so. So thank you. Love you. Uh, all right, guys. Well, you're in for a treat. We have the queen of the scapegoats. 
I'm the queen of the shit show and you have now been anointed queen of the scapegoats, Rebecca Manville. Hi. Hi. This has been long in the meeting, long in the making. Yeah. Months and months we've been trying. Yes. But I feel like you've been part of my journey. Well, first, let me just say, so you guys go check out her new YouTube channel. It's called Beyond Family Scapegoating Abuse. Was there another part to that? Did I miss a part? No, I think you got it all. Okay. And then her book, which I read all the time in reference. I was just looking back through all my highlights. Um, it is called Rejected, Shamed, and Blamed, Help and Hope for Adults in the Family Scapegoat Role. She has, all, you guys, just check out the show notes. You'll see all of her stuff in there. You coined the term family scapegoat abuse. I did. How the hell did you come up with that term? Well, I had been researching on scapegoating for almost 20 years, going back to when I was core faculty at the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology graduate program, people who want to be licensed marriage family therapists. And then pause. What, what, what would make you want to study that? Maybe a little personal experience? Well, I was in teaching <laughs> the family systems program. And I noticed some fascinating things when I had my students do their family genogram. Mm -hmm. And the family genogram is when you go back several generations, just like with genealogy only, you're looking for patterns, emotional and behavioral patterns, and certain types of events with family members. And when I first did it in the graduate program, because I went to school there before I started teaching, it was shocking. I got a lot of data from my mother. I did. I, I hadn't known. And when you lay it out, I saw generations of trauma, traumatic events. I couldn't imagine one family could have so many horrible things happen to them generation after generation after generation. And then you start to see patterns with addiction, suicide, you know, um, disappearing relatives. They're there one day, they're gone the next. No one knows where they went. It was overwhelming for me when I did that. And it was also life-changing. I decided in that moment, I'm, I'm going to be an MFT and I am going to be teaching, studying, talking about researching anything to do with family systems. Was this Richard, what's his name? Richard Schwartz? Is that his name? Oh, the internal family systems. No, that's, that came later. This okay. was the original family systems theorists back in the 60s and 70s. Most of them were social workers. And the greats would be today, we would consider Virginia Satir, Salvador Mnuchin, and Marie Bowen, who I mentioned in my book, who uh, uh, studied, uh, talked often about the family projection process that ties into scapegoating. And I was fortunate to be trained by the chair of my program. She interned for all three of these when she oh, was- wow. So I got it almost, you know, one removed from the master's mouse and I just developed a, a natural passion for family systems. So when I was teaching it and I had my students doing their genograms, you know, I was starting to get a lot more data and I started to see patterns even amongst my students. And I went, wait, wait a minute. There's something going on here with people who feel scapegoated in their families and how that affects them through the course of their life. So fast forward now to just a few years ago when I was working on my book to get my research, not the results, I'm still crunching numbers, but the general overview of my research and what I discovered. And I saw that there was a lot going on on social media, Twitter with narcissistic abuse. And I started to read people talking about, and I don't mean this critically, but I often saw 
scapegoating is narcissistic abuse. And I said to myself, wait a minute, scapegoating, we know from 50 years of family systems research, scapegoating can happen in any dysfunctional family system, in particular, mm -hmm. where there is intergenerational, what Murray Bowen called multi-generational trauma. And I wasn't finding anyone saying that it can happen in families that aren't narcissistic. And then me personally, I was like, wait a minute, this, this is a form of psycho-emotional abuse. When you go scapegoating, going down the continuum, when it gets to a certain point and certain extremities of behavior toward that child or adult child, we're talking about invisible abuse or psycho-emotional abuse. Why am I not seeing this? So I decided, well, I've been researching on this almost 20 years. I'm giving it a name and damn the torpedoes. And because when we name something, we mm -hmm. can start to have a sense of what we're dealing with and we can start to have a prognosis. Uh, we can start to treat it. Now I have to stress, this is not a DSM condition. This is not in our diagnostic manual, complex trauma, still not, you know, um, it is over in the UK the VA here mm -hmm. uh, acknowledges complex trauma. And the reason I bring that up is what I found is many people who have suffered from family scapegoating abuse also have complex trauma symptoms. Yeah, I would say probably all of them, most of them. Yeah. People got so fixated on like narcissism and narcissistic abuse. Like so, and, and the other thing I think too is with borderline, I get so many messages on social media basically saying whenever I make a video about complex PTSD, they're like, no, you're wrong. You know, this is border. Like, I don't know what it is. It's almost like people think that it's like sexy to have a borderline diagnose. I don't know what it is, but people are very fixated on it. And I think that we can get so fixated on having a diagnosis for something when does it really, really matter that much? You know, like I, I think it's a, it's a continuum, right? It's a spectrum. It's a continuum. And frankly, you're really on the right track because my research also showed that many people diagnosed with a various types of personality disorders, including borderline, were actually suffering from complex trauma. And all the most renowned people in the complex trauma field will tell you the same mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. We've, we've misdiagnosing, which is why it's so critical we get complex trauma into the DSM. I mean, I hope I see that in my lifetime. It needs to happen. I was clueless. I had no idea that what I was experiencing was trauma. And what a relief that was because I just thought I was crazy. And for anyone listening to this, we know that childhood trauma can that results in complex trauma can be from repeated chronic stressors in the child's environment from which there is no escape. And for most children, there's no escape. We might, you know, like I did, I was two years old and hopped on my little tricycle and ended up at the school around the corner, you know, it was my great escape, but you know, <laughs> lasted for two hours till my sister found me, but most, most children aren't going to make a permanent escape from their childhood home. So that's, that's something really important for people to hear repeated chronic stressors in the environment from which there is no escape and most children can't escape it. So that's enough to have complex trauma. Not everyone will because every child's different with how they're wired, but that's enough. People are looking for a big event 
I didn't have some big traumatic event. I say that in my book with my case study on Lily. It doesn't have to be a big traumatic event. It can just be these chronic repeated stressors, which any dysfunctional family has. And some dysfamilies are more dysfunctional than others. And some will have addiction going on. Also, some might have a malignant narcissist at the helm or a narcissist in that and that can have sociopathic features with malignant narcissism. So the child's going to be going through all kinds of unpleasant stressors in that type of situation. One thing that I was talking about my, with my therapist recently is when it comes to more subtle forms of abuse or neglect. So for me, for example, you know, I was never told that I was like a piece of shit. I was never like really verbally abused. I was always told that they love me. I was never told like, you're ugly, you know, you're not smart, any of those things. And so it makes the, the internalization of those messages though, it makes it so hard for me to like identify them because conscious, I think that if it's more um, blatant, I think that those um, messages are more conscious for somebody Whereas in my case, it's like the, the outward messages were not that. However, there were all these internalized messages, but it was so hard for me to identify that because consciously I didn't feel that way or I didn't think that way, you know? And so I think that that's, it's, I think it's what you talk about when you talk about how most people don't even know that they suffered any abuse at all when it comes to scapegoating. But I guess what I want to ask you there is like, are most people that you are working with or that you're getting the research from, is, is this like subtle forms of scapegoating? Because I think that some forms of scapegoating can be rather blatant and rather like obvious and rather horrible. And other times it can be more subtle. So what are you typically seeing through your research? Both. Um, the It can be very, very blatant where a child can be labeled difficult from a very early age. Um, I've had more than one case of a child being blamed, an adult child being blamed for a bad relationship with a parent because, quote unquote, you rejected my breast milk. Mm. Now imagine that the baby rejected the breast milk on purpose to give mom a problem. Now, but this, of course, this, duh. This is, this is not <laughs> unusual. Uh, other blatant examples would be, and I have an article about this, we call it the narcissistic martyr parent ploy, a child being um, called a liar or a drug addict or a thief, and the child's like a straight A student. The parents, <laughs> it's almost like a form of uh, Munchausen by proxy. The parents yeah. All this attention because they have this horrid child and the child's actually a straight A student. This has happened to some of my clients. Um, a three-year-old the father puts the three-year-old in a car with a can of Coca-Cola and it goes over a bump and it spills. The child ruined the new carpet in the new car on purpose to antagonize the father. These are real stories. So that would be blatant forms, but scapegoating can be far more insidious and subtle, especially when we get into talking about a highly sensitive child, what Alice Miller called in the drama, the gifted child, the gifted child, or uh, the empath, the family empath, because, and I'm transpersonally focused. So I believe there's energetic mm -hmm. realities we're dealing with here, mm -hmm. as did Murray Bowen, when he talked about the multi-generational family transmission, transmitting trauma through the generations. This empath child 
may have little projection feathers cast their way. And I say it's like we're tarred and feathered. It's like you're you're covered with the sticky stuff because you're the family empath and that scapegoating energy, all the unconscious anxiety of the family system, all of the unrecognized trauma, all of the anxieties, problems that haven't been dealt with flows onto this empath truth teller sensitive child and it sticks on them like feathers. So this child's going through life tarred and feathered and has no idea what's happening to them, but they're actually a victim of the family projective identification process, which is an unconscious process that's been studied in family systems for decades. And everyone needs to know about this. That can result in scapegoating of a child. It's a little different than when a narcissist parent scapegoats a child. This is more subtle, it's unconscious, the family's not aware they're doing it, but that child will be seen as different. They'll be otherized and they'll be seen as problematic, as too sensitive. Uh, uh, their truth will often be denied because they are seeing the truth. So that's very threatening. And I've had a client, for example, you know, casually share, honestly, mommy drinks all day and sleeps on the couch. It doesn't get up till five, you know, well, mommy's not happy when that story <laughs> gets out and that child may be punished and shamed and they were just telling the truth. So that empath child in my research, a high percentage of people who identify as being scapegoated at the level I talk about family scapegoating abuse also identified as being highly sensitive or empathic. And I'd love to see a PhD student pick that up and run with it in a dissertation. I'm surprised it hasn't. I've had people contact me. So I'm working on that. And I'm working on getting some of my research into a peer-reviewed stage because it's, it's right now qualitative, experiential, people's lived experience. But it hasn't gone through the peer review process, which I always like to stress. It's, it's built on good qualitative sound methodology. But this is not peer-reviewed research, be that as it may, people have found it very helpful that I gave it a name and that I am sharing my research findings on this. What was the term that you just said? It wasn't the family projection process. It was, what was it? Family, what? Identification? It's a family projective identification process. Okay. Can you explain that? It, that is in families often that are highly traumatized family systems, generations of unaddressed trauma, unaddressed anxiety, or it could just be that particular generation of family, there's trauma, anxiety, addiction, alcoholism, and a lack of psychological awareness, unconsciously, as a system, as a group system, and this happens with other groups, by the way, uh, not just families, there's an imperative within a, a, a um, dysfunctional system to create a scapegoat to carry the shadow or the, the problem, to be the problem for the group. If anyone's read the Lord of the Flies piggy, that poor little boy piggy that came to an unhappy end at the end of the book, he was made to carry the dark shadow of the little, the boy tribe on mm -hmm. that island. Well, we know groups do that in general. This is how we otherize people. Racism, for example. Well, guess what? Dysfunctional families do it too. And with dysfunctional families, we call it the family projective identification process where unconsciously that family's putting the burden 
of all of that unaddressed angst, anxiety, intergenerational trauma on unconsciously it's put onto that child. And my research suggests it will be put onto the empath child, Mm -hmm. the child most likely to go into psychology or be interested in psychology. um, The child who's very perceptive, who's sensitive and their truth telling can be a big threat to that kind of family system. Even, even their eyes, how they're looking at a parent can be a threat because they're seeing what would be examples of truth telling other than like saying to somebody outside the family, what's going on in the family. I guess it would be even just saying it within the family. Within the family of off empaths also are often justice seekers. They may come to the aid of a sibling. They may go to protect that sibling. They may say, dad, you can't do that. Or dad, you know, you're drinking or dad, you're mean. Um, You know, that truth will just come out of their mouth until perhaps they learn it's too dangerous. And they may take on then the trauma response of fawning or submitting just to get by in that family and survive. And they will no longer, they've learned not to say the truth out loud. Mm -hmm. Um, Some children will keep saying it. They have more of the trauma response of fight and, Mm -hmm. um, Actually, I rather see that as a therapist, the fight response, because they're, you know, they're, they're going to hold on to their sense of identity and their truth and their sense of self more than a a fawn or submitter where they have to shove everything down and repress it and kind of forget the truth so they don't get into hot water with their family. Mm -hmm. I feel like the way that my truth telling came out was that I developed this separation anxiety. Mm. I view that as me sounding the alarm bells in a sense that like something's not right here. We hear often about the trauma responses, fight, flight, freeze, fun, but there's a fifth that a lot of people aren't aware of. Janina Fisher talks about it in her book that I love transforming the living legacy of trauma. I use that workbook with my clients and that fifth response is called cry for help. Mm. And often that child will have a lot of anxiety, may even be acting out, may get into drugs or alcohol. And it's actually a cry for help trauma Mm. response. And the other thing to know about scapegoating is the scapegoat is the one ejected from the family, so to speak, ejected from the tribe, like the goat cast out, you know, by Aaron in the Bible to take on the sins of the tribe. But at the same time, the scapegoat unconsciously is being sent out by the family to get help. Mm. Unconsciously, the family knows they need help. The scapegoat is sent out into the wilderness, but they're also sent out to bring help back to the family, but the family doesn't know it. Mm. And often the scapegoat will go into the healing arts and be helpful to others, help others. Um, I say in my book, I propose we're not carrying the sins of the tribe as scapegoats. I propose we're carrying the unaddressed, unacknowledged intergenerational trauma and the family needs help and doesn't know it. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get them that help. Maybe you are in a way through your podcast. Maybe I am in a way through my book, but often they can't hear the message and they can't accept the help because they pathologize the scapegoat. They're seen as crazy a liar, a fake, a fraud, a phony, a this, a that, everything that you read in my book, <laughs> you name it. Scapegoat yeah, check, 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 check. I think that this is a common experience, but do you often see where, so the 
the scapegoat label is placed upon a child and then they act accordingly. Well, they can, they can live the story that's been attached to them. And I think that that can happen when I worked in the addiction treatment clinics Um, I got enough history to see that that child was probably the identified patient Mm -hmm. and over time became what the parents said they were. Do you see a difference between the two, like scapegoating an identified patient? Would you say that there's a difference? They're closely related. Um, I think in the classic family system sense, if you were going to go to the literature and to the research, they're going to, that term identified patient has a certain meaning and was researched on in a certain way. So I wouldn't attach my, my version of scapegoating to it, but I would say scapegoating is an aspect of the identified patient. Yeah. But I would be careful to separate what I'm researching on with what the family system theorists researched on all those decades ago when they talked about the identified patient. So I wouldn't use them interchangeably, but they're closely related and could be interchangeable depending on each person's circumstance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about, so I feel, and this, it's interesting that you just said that we're being sent out to get help, to bring it back to the family. So me acting in my scapegoat role actually provided value to the rest of the system value they may not recognize but value that may be visible well in the sense that like they had to focus their attention on me because i was creating so much trouble Mm -hmm. my mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting that's exactly part of the identified patient role that's exactly how unconsciously the ip is helping the family but the identified patient is paying a big price and carrying burdens that ideally they never should have had to carry. Yeah. It's kind of like a double-edged sword because in a way, I think that them making me the identified patient actually allowed for my, my addiction and alcoholism to like progress rather quickly. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like because there were so many consequences it just helped me to get sober quicker in a in a sense. So it's like, I'm grateful for it in that sense that they sent me to so many rehabs and boarding schools, because I do feel like that um, allowed me to finally hit bottom at such a young age. Mm. But the problem is, it's like, it's always a balloon, right? My, my therapist talks about like, you know, you're pushing on one end. And so here I am bulged out. Okay. Well then I get sober. Well, it's going to bulge out elsewhere. He's right. Or your therapist is correct. Until the root cause in the family system is addressed. And sadly, that's very hard to do, especially in this day and age where families aren't often going into a room. And then it needs to be understood how the family will focus on the identified patient in the therapy room. And the ways you get around that is that family identified patient really needs to be there with their own dedicated therapist who's coordinating treatment with the family systems therapist. Mm. Otherwise, and I've seen this happen with my clients before they found me, they innocently go off to family therapy. The therapist has the whole backstory from the group, the, the parents, the rest of the family, and they walk in and they're slaughtered, so to speak. The whole group system comes down on them as the problem. Some therapists unfortunately can fall into that trap and the client's 
re-traumatized, the family scapegoat of the IP is re-traumatized from that session. So it's iatrogenic. It was supposed to help and it caused harm. Family therapy has to be handled very specifically, specific with specific guidelines. In order for it to be effective. The person's yeah. not going to get re-traumatized. I've, I've seen terrible trauma come out of that where they've walked in. Wow. Even with their own therapist, the therapist has been traumatized from what happened in the room with a parent, for example, just brutally going after, oh, they're faking it. Oh, the tears are fake. Oh, they've got you convinced that we're the problem. You don't know the half of it. And the clients, you know, my clients having to hear all this again before they found me where I would have advised against it. There should be a several month preparation process with all the therapists involved and a, and a, emotionally safe environment for that work to happen. And now we have internal family systems, which can be very individual, but you don't hear a lot about family therapy anymore. And uh, yeah, this would actually be something interesting to dive into some, because just to kind of get your feedback, more opinion on that. So for me, for example, I mean, my therapist wouldn't, even if I wanted to have a session with my parents, she wouldn't, there's no value to it. When would it be valuable before we go into family therapy, should every person already be in individual therapy? Like, how would you? Well, I would recommend that. And I'd recommend one more thing. And actually, I, got, I learned this from one of my clients who's a psychotherapist. And it's something she did that I, I now use. She wrote every family member and said, this family is invested in having me be the identified patient the scapegoat, the carrier of the family problems. And before I will go to, cause they wanted her to go into family therapy. She said, before I will go into family therapy with any of you, I need each of you to be in touch with me and acknowledge what's happened to me and that you're committed to not putting me in that role anymore. And that you will work with your own individual therapist to make sure I'm not put in that role anymore. And then and only then will I participate in family therapy. Wow. And that's what I recommend now. Hmm. And I'm, well, I don't know. I'm sure is there some circumstances where that wouldn't, obviously, if they can't even send that or if it's advised that you don't if even, you can't send, even that. send that, then you're walking into a potentially re-traumatizing situation. And sadly, it's rare that that's going to happen because of people's lack of ego strength. They don't have the ego strength to look at where they may have harmed their own family member, much less apologize for it. And what you'll hear instead, what you'll hear instead, which I've actually heard myself, sorry, I'll never say I'm sorry. Sorry. I'll never say I'm sorry. Not a lot of (laughs) discussion after that is there, you know, why go into family therapy with someone who's going to say that to you? What about for somebody who's listening, who, you know, has recently realized that they're an adult child and perhaps has realized that they have placed one of their kids in a scapegoat role? That, that is an excellent question. Uh, I, and I'm not trying to pump my book, but it'd be great if they read my book, so, it, including so that they can understand how that happened because they've no doubt might feel some shame, mm-hmm. um, even appropriate shame, so to speak, that they put their child in that position. They may be realizing it happened to them and they're just repeating what was done to them. 
And so that they can have compassion for themselves first and foremost, forgive themselves if they feel they need to have that sort of forgiveness process with themselves first. And then they can, depending on the age of the child, address it. If the child's very, very young, it wouldn't be age appropriate, but the behaviors could change. I've had many people write me and say, oh my God, I'm doing this to my child. If the child's older, they can talk about it in an age appropriate way. This is something we've done in our family. This is how certain children in our family have been treated. And this happened to me or this happened to so-and-so or Uncle Bob, you know, I'm uh, so sorry. I'm afraid I may have been doing this to you and mommy's going to do everything not to do it. And if you feel that ouchy feeling, I said something that hurt you, please tell, please tell mommy and daddy right away. You know, there's age appropriate ways to talk about it, but often we do do it to our children. It's, it's a pattern and we repeat the patterns until we get the awareness. Awareness is the first step, get the awareness. And then you have choices. You can make different choices and do it different in the future. So awareness is always the first step. And it can be a painful awareness to realize, Oh my God, I just, I'm doing this to my child. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what about, let's talk about some subtle signs that someone may experience who experienced scapegoating abuse as a kid, but don't realize it, but now are um, suffering from the aftermath. I mean, I think it's very similar to the the symptoms of being an adult child, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it, a lot of the laundry list traits. But with scapegoating in particular, unless you were the fight type, mm-hmm. almost everyone that comes to me, no matter how successful, I have some very successful in the world, out in the world, highly functioning clients. There's a pervasive sense of something's wrong with me there's a pervasive sense of shame which is toxic shame actually and they're not even fully aware it's like embedded in your bones mm-hmm. kind of shame that's toxic shame you are shame it's not that you feel shame you are yep. walking shame on two legs um <laughs> wanting imposter syndrome always feeling people are going to find out you're not what you're pretending to be and as I said in one of my videos, it's no wonder that you feel that way because often your family is saying you're a fake and a phony and you're not, you know, they know the real you. Um, so that can go real deep, that sense of, oh, if people find out, they're going to find out. And I have, again, I have clients running, I have a client that's running a $3 billion company and she's just waiting for the receptionist to find out she's a big fake. I mean, she's worried about what everyone thinks about her. And that that's a sign, fawning, submitting, codependency, people pleasing, wanting to just get by, go along to get along, all of that can be associated with coping mechanisms and survival behaviors in childhood from being scapegoated. When it comes, I, I struggle and have been very mindful of the imposter syndrome stuff as it comes to doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just like that fear that I'll just wake up the next day and everybody's going to realize that actually they don't like it, me anymore, or that actually I am crazy or also just the, the deep fear of that. I am just going to self-sabotage, right? Mm-hmm. Because especially as a teenager being very capable being really smart, being really gifted athletically, but just like choosing drugs and alcohol, just having that potential, but never living up to it. 
And just the fear that like, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm just going to fuck this all up. And so it's just been, I've been trying to be very mindful of that and just see what still needs to be, to be healed there. But like, especially as a teenager, it's like, it, it didn't take long for people to realize they they didn't like me, you know, <laughs> like one or two times. And so it's like, I'll have to catch myself. Cause it's like, all of a sudden I think I'm going to wake up. All of my podcast listeners are actually going to realize that I'm crazy and they want nothing to do with me. <laughs> You're in good company. I went to see Salvador Manusha, one of the greats in family systems. And he was in his eighties then. <laughs> I'll never forget. He stood up there, looked at the thousands of people there to see him. And he said, you know, when I go to Italy, they love me so much. They There's people who kiss my feet like I'm the Pope. And now you're all clapping for me here. And all I'm thinking is, oh, I'm really fooling all of you. <laughs> I am like a, such a fake. You have no idea. I'm not anything you think I am. And, you know, but everyone could really relate with that. And I think a lot of therapists end up being therapists because of all kinds of interesting things going on in their family. So everyone in the room, I think, could really relate to that. In your case, you know, think of it as parts. If you talk about internal family systems, you have parts, a part or parts or maybe teenage mm-hmm. parts that are afraid the curtain's going to get pulled back like in Wizard of Oz and they'll see you're there just pulling levers. But that's just the part mm-hmm. and reminding yourself. I know that helps me. I have a part that feels that way and working with that part and tending to that part and nurturing that part and helping that part catch up to the very competent, skilled, effective you that you are. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about healing. When somebody comes in, where do you start? I think as with any good psychotherapy, we need to assess, but I'm, I'm one who assesses conversationally. You'll never find me with a piece of filling out a form. Yeah, exactly. No, I'll be conversational in my assessing, but especially with scapegoating, I can tell probably within 15 minutes where someone is in either being aware of if they have been scapegoated. And you know what? Not everyone who comes to me for scapegoating has been scapegoated in the sense that I treat it. Really? Yeah. They could actually have been a victim of narcissistic abuse more than the scapegoating. Now the scapegoating may be part of it, but I'll, I'll say, you know, what we really need to treat you for is narcissistic abuse. Scapegoating is a piece of it. Then there's the classic, what I've called FSA. And I can see um, if they're in the very early stages have no awareness at all. That's when I'll, I'll hear that there's something wrong with me from my whole family to treat me this way. There has to be something wrong with me. There might be a lot of tears, including my male clients. I and mean, this is very, 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 very painful thing to experience. Uh, And then there'll be people who, oh, I think this happened to me, but I know I don't have trauma. And I'll have a lot of my psychologists say this to me. And within a month, we're both laughing because remember last month when you said I said I didn't have any trauma. (laughs) They're swimming in complex (laughs) trauma symptoms. Um, And then I have people who really, they're really close to what I call radical acceptance. And they just need my help getting over some humps, working through anger and grief. But they have a lot of, they've worked through a lot, but they're just not quite in that place of radical acceptance. And the truth is, I don't think anyone heals fully from family scapegoating. Mm -hmm. This is our family we're talking about. I believe there'll always be some pain attached there. 
on how that's impacted our relationships. Either you know, we have to be careful, limit contact. Some people have to go no contact. Some people are still stuffing their truth around their family and just feeling really icky afterwards. You know, everyone's on their own part of their healing journey and not everyone's ready to limit or end contact, even if they need to for their own well-being. But we, we basically as psychotherapists, we're assessing and we can diagnose complex trauma, even if it's not in the DSM, but we have to, as I said, in my book, be creative how we're coding it for mm-hmm. insurance reasons, if someone's wanting insurance reimbursement. And then we have our prognosis and I can give everyone a good prognosis, surprisingly. And people can heal from this surprisingly fast when they realize this one important thing. And I say this lightly, but it's serious. It's not personal. Mm. It's the family projective identification process. That scapegoat narrative has nothing to do with you and your true self. And when we can slice through that Gordian knot with the sword of truth and go, I am not that which my family says I am. I am not crazy. I'm not mentally ill. I'm not difficult. I don't feel too much. You know, I'm beautifully sensitive. I don't fake my illnesses. You know, I'm not a phony. When we can start to really disidentify from what we are not and never were and who we actually are, this is who I really am. And realize that was a narrative that got attached to us. And through no fault of our own, we might have been the empath in the families, often how it happens. Once we disidentify from that scapegoat narrative and realize we were victimized by a systemic unconscious process, unless it was a malignant narcissist situation, I do like to make that clear, we can quickly heal. I know if it's a, if a malignant narcissist was responsible for the scapegoating, you're going to have other kinds of abuse and injuries that have to be tended to along with the scapegoat narrative, which would be, can you talk about that some? Well, a narcissistic abuse as anyone who understands it, especially a malignant narcissist parent, malignant narcissists can have sociopathic traits. So that child may have been, this can happen scapegoating abuse too but you could have strong features of structural dissociation meaning you may feel like you have many split parts and you're many different people you may numb you may check out you may i have an article on structural dissociation and you're going to need a therapist who understands how to work i'm not i don't think i've ever heard that term it's not and it's not dissociative identity disorder it's not like you're becoming different people but we all have many parts I mean, I've never heard structure. I mean, I know what dissociation is. I've just never heard structural. It's associated with complex trauma. I have an article on it on my blog. Remind me and I can email that to you. And that structural dissociation has many symptoms attached to it, but you can feel like you're a lot of different people. You may dissociate where you feel checked out, checked out of your body. Um, it's, it's scapegoating abuse can also be very severe. But if you grew up with a narcissist parent, malignant narcissist parent who also scapegoated you, you've got a double dose, kind of like dual diagnosis with addiction. You got a double dose of of abuse that you're going to need a really good professional to help you with. When you say that once we can disidentify with that, I the the identify the scapegoat narrative. 
I mean, is it really that simple though? Because it's like, we're dealing with toxic shame. Right. And so it's like, that is so deep within our core that it's hard to break through that. It, I feel like it does take a lot of time to, you know, to, to rewire. This identifying the first cognitive step that, that front part of our brain, you know, we're, cognitive behavioral therapy addresses, you know, just like the slogans in a 12 step program, these, you know, we need to keep reminding ourselves, we are not that, but we have neural pathways that may have been wired around the scapegoating or the narcissistic abuse. Our brains may have developed around abusive behaviors. 80% of the brains developed by the time we're six years old, that toxic shame, as you say, is deep, it's embedded, it's unconscious that does take a lot of time to heal from. But I will say, because I've worked with so many people by the six month mark, my clients are feeling remarkably better, mm -hmm. far better than I would have expected from that disidentification from the narrative. And then we have to start that deeper work on the complex trauma and the toxic shame. Mm -hmm. But that's a good point you're making. I didn't mean to imply it's a quick. That you're process. good. You're fixed. You're good yeah. to go. Um, but so then what, what is your process of, and I'm sure it's individualized, but for somebody who is, they can see that they are the scapegoat of the family, but they're really struggling to see that this isn't really who they are. Well, my book's really helpful. So again, if they can grab a copy, I try to keep it pretty cheap there uh, in terms of what I charge. Because that will give the psychoeducation that's needed to understand what happened to them. And then I do talk about treatment modalities, resources, and how to start recovering from this. And, but I do like to stress, you can recover. I've had people write me, I hear from people all over the world. I've had people write me in their eighties. And one, one woman said to me, I'll never forget. She said, thank you so much for your book. I never understood what had happened to me and my family and they're gone now, but I have so much peace just from knowing what happened to me. We can't always fix it with our family, but if we understand what happened to us and then free ourselves from that narrative and heal the trauma, which takes time, we can go on to live healthy lives without this heavy burden of being the scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Even if the family's still smearing you. Well, that's the next topic that I want to get into. <laughs> <laughs> so hold on, let me look at these questions to see what people. Hmm. Yeah. So, hmm. so one lady, one person asked, um, Amy, hi, Amy, John. Um, so we already asked the part about the truth telling, but she said, do dysfunctional parents vilify them or make them the identified patient in order to continue denying the truth? I would think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's often unconscious on their part. It's not always deliberate with a narcissist parent. It might be deliberate. Be deliberate. With a traumatized parent. It may just be the truth is too threatening to their psyche they can't face it mm -hmm. and sadly they will they will make the child the problem versus being having the strength to face the ego strength to face the truth yeah because it's just too hard 
And it is like a sacrificing of the child. It's a sacrificing of the child's well-being. And, and that's, that's part of the tragedy, especially when the parent wakes up later and goes, oh, my God, what have I done? And some do. Doesn't happen a lot, but some do. Yeah, I think that the when I reflect upon it for myself, I think the most tragic thing is just that that identity being placed on me, thus causing me to just in, behave in ways that just perpetuated even more shame. You know, like that's really just the heart cry, cry for help. Mm-hmm. It's like a thousand. It's like you were handed a a big black thousand pound suitcase by your family system unconsciously here you carry this for us no child can carry that so that is a cry for help when so in in john bradshaw's book when he talks about like shameful acting out and shameless acting in do do scapegoats ever take the shameless acting in route because for me i obviously leaned into the shame and perpetuated even more of it I would assume that genuinely that would be the case, but is it ever the opposite? Oh, it's, it's definitely can be the opposite. And I, um, again, I almost would prefer it as a therapist when the child is able to act out because I think there's less damage is that I think there's many scapegoated children where it gets internalized and it's a quiet internal implosion. And often you will end up with depression, suicidal ideation, and even suicide. It's interesting that you say that because I always felt like if it would be, it's better when they, a person gets the shameless acting end. <laughs> no, I mean, in a way you're acting out might've saved you from something worse like suicide or a constant state of being in a living constant suicidal ideation, no quality of life. The, the acting out in a way is, is almost an anger um, expression. And it's a, I call it a righteous rage because some part, even mm. if it's unconscious knows what's happening is wrong because mm. you're carrying this big suitcase for the whole family mm. and it needs to be distributed. Everyone needs to be carrying some of it. And the ideal situation I've had it happen. It's rare. The family comes in and they work on intergenerational trauma and they, and it, but it's often the identified patient that gets them into family therapy. Really? Oh Yeah. So have you worked with many families like all together? Mm-hmm. I have not many because not many are able, capable or willing, but it's often at an addiction treatment center, for example, uh, addicted suicidal client, and they'll end up eventually in my private practice doing family therapy. And I will always find always severe intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. you know, genocide, war, you know, European roots where there's lost missing family members from genocide or Holocaust, you know, so much trauma in the families never even talked about it or acknowledged it. And it's like that one child's carrying the grief and they're carrying, they're bringing the family together through their constant suicide attempts. The whole family's rallied around that child that needs help or that adult Mm. child that needs help. And it brings the family together but that child's paying the price. Yeah, I know I can relate. (laughs) Do you, have you had many situations where you've had to say this is an effective or one family member can't participate? 
You're probably so selective about who you would even appreciate with doing it with to begin with. Because you know what I like to really stress? Uh, Oftentimes, even in these families that brutally scapegoat, again, I'm not excusing, but when it's driven by intergenerational trauma and the family projective identification process, there's actually love in those families. Mm -hmm. And I've had families where, frankly, especially when I was an intern, I was afraid to work with them because there was such an angry, narcissistic seeming, say, father, you know, that I was scared of, you know, and I'm saying to my supervisor, I can't work with this family. And she's saying, yes, you can with my support. And that father behind all that anger and rage and narcissistic traits, that father loved his children and his family. And he participated wholeheartedly, grudgingly at first, but eventually wholeheartedly in the family therapy. You know, Mm -hmm. so that's love can transcend many things. And we don't want to assume there's not love in families that scapegoat. There is, there can be with the exception of when you have a malignant narcissist, strong narcissist, and there's, there's no love going on there. Have you noticed any difference between um, scapegoat abuse when um, alcohol or addiction is present versus other types of dysfunction? That's a really great question. I I would say when there, if we have a parent that's scapegoating, they're extra defended if there's drinking or drug use going on. What do you mean by that extra defended? Because the often addiction is is something they're hoping the children aren't, aren't noticing. Oh, okay. Got be hiding. And then if you have a truth telling child, who's, who's putting out there, what's actually happening with that parent, they have an extra reason to pathologize the child and say the child's a liar or doesn't know what they're talking about or is crazy. Also a child that's being sexually abused in the family boy, a parent might have a real, or sibling could have a real good reason to want to make that child out to be a liar Mm. because the truth's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Truth can be very dangerous in a dysfunctional family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now I want to talk about when scapegoats try to heal and what the rest of the family does. Mm. What's like the worst story? What you got to get some good stories of family backlash. Sure. Uh, The one star reviews on my book from family. (laughs) I'll have to read some of them. There's some doozies. And I'll say, did you happen to give your family member my book thinking it would be helpful? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, okay. That explains that. I've had my phone light up. And I can see from caller ID, it's relatives, siblings, parents of my client. And they want to really give me the business. Oh, and let's not forget, I'm crazy. I'm I'm a crazy therapist because I talk about these things that aren't valid in their opinions. Oh, you're seeing that crazy therapist who wrote that crazy book. So again, there's the invalidation of the professional, no matter their background, their license, they're considered a world expert, what have you. Therapist is crazy. The client's crazy. So I would imagine that occasionally it does get under your skin. Cause I thought that I would be like, occasionally when I get some reviews, I mean, or if I get messages, generally speaking, I'm pretty thick skin, but sometimes it does get me a little riled up. So be honest. <laughs> yeah, in the beginning, 
I, it, it felt, I'll be honest with you. It felt, it felt traumatizing because you're putting your work out there, your truth out there. And, and then you're being slaughtered verbally and I'm not going to pretend as a highly sensitive person who's putting my life's work out there that it didn't hurt. So then I went through a period where I just didn't look at the reviews and had someone else I trust look at them to take any of the genuinely defamatory ones off, which I had some of those. Amazon kindly took off for me. And now, and now it, I will say it doesn't bother me too much because it, it's going to, the truth is always going to get a reaction of different kinds. So if someone's not ready for my message, it's okay. And if they need to lash out because of their own denial or anger, it's okay. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get to me anymore. And Good. I, I hope that you find that. Yeah. It, it, most of the time it doesn't. Um, occasionally it will. So the majority of the time, I'm assuming the family does not react well when the scapegoat starts to heal. Obviously, some people are willing to cut off contact. Other people are limited, like limiting contact. But generally speaking, when would you recommend that somebody needs to take a period of like no con of no contact? Like, do you kind of have a a line in the sand? It's so coincidental because right before I had an interview before. And right after that interview and before you, I just filmed a new video. And this is exactly what I'm talking about is the overview of the recovery process and when someone might have to limit contact as part of their recovery process. What we know when we treat trauma is you have to have an emotionally safe environment to recover mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. If you're having a lot of family contact that's making you feel like crap for whatever reason, and you're in tears every time you come to a session or what have you, I'm going to have to say to that person, I can't help you right now, help you open up and be vulnerable the way you're going to need to be to do this kind of work. If you're going to your family, and getting slaughtered. It, you can't, I can't ethically do that. So we'll talk about how can you take a step back or limit contact. This can be really hard uh, in minority families where it is very collective mm -hmm. and you don't ever take space. Yeah, so cultural. Yeah. As one of my minority clients says, cutting off families, a white people thing, Rebecca, we could never get away with that in my <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's some truth to it, actually. So I've got to look, I got to, you have to have cultural competence too, before you just willy nilly as a therapist say, we well, got to cut your family off. You do have to create a safe space for healing and, and the client's got to be honest with themselves, whether they're going to be able to be willing to do that create that container for healing and it might last a long time. It might be a short time. They might find they do need to end contact if they're being abused and it's not stopping. And unfortunately you're right. It can't actually get worse as you get healthier. Why? Because you're setting boundaries or you're saying, you know what, I'm going to need you to talk to me more respectfully or, Hey, that's not okay that you did that. That's not going to be okay for me. You know, or, there needs to be a place for me to have my feelings in this family. Well, in a dysfunctional family, you being healthy could make you, them scapegoat you even worse. Mm -hmm. And I have to prepare my clients for that. It's similar to like dating. I think I'm such a big proponent of 
If you have a broken picker, you need to take a break and be single and work on your shit. And then you're going to be in a place where then you can kind of work it out in dating. And I think it's very similar with this family stuff too. It's like, we may need to take a break so that we can get whole. And then if we want to try to have a relationship with them, well, then we're going to be in a much more sturdy, solid place where we are going to be able to set boundaries. And have more compassion for why they are the way they are. And to give the family time to start doing new dance steps with you. Mm-hmm. And I always say some will accept your invitation to do the new healthier dance. And some aren't. And they're going to be stepping on your feet all the time. And you'll have to decide. Are you going to wear combat boots? Are you going to dance with them? Are you going to stay five feet away? But a dysfunctional family, many times the family members are not in any kind of recovery process, therapy. And they're not going to know how to do the healthier dance with you. So then we have to decide how we're going to manage that. What about when setting a no contact rule with family? Do you have a script that you recommend that people use or how to explain it? I like to help my clients organically work their way into their own script. Yep. So it's, um, I think it's a big mistake if a therapist imposes that in any way on a client, because it could really backfire if that client's not really ready to but so when they are ready to do it and it's coming from a deep place of health and it's organic to them and in their bones, so to speak, that letter is going to come out and it's going to be different for everyone. I do always recommend they let me look at it first just to take anything really loaded or unnecessary out. But I'll be honest, most of the time my clients just send it because they're so ready. And then they tell me afterward. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Let's see what it I says. I would think that less is more, most well, likely. Less is more, I'm sure. Yeah, because most times family's not going to understand it anyway. And so I always say, write the letter that serves you at the highest level. You, you, you are the one in recovery. You are the one trying to heal from this. What's going to serve you at the highest level and put those words down. And usually by the time my clients are ready to do it. Those do who the ones who choose to, by the time they're ready, they have a lot of compassion for themselves, but they have a lot of compassion for the family too. So they're able to write a firm yet compassionate letter, whether the family sees that it's compassionate, I, you can't control that. But I can tell when I read it, there's a lot of compassion there and love. Yeah. I think the big thing is like being mindful, making sure that you're not writing anything in a way that you think is going to invoke change. Because it won't, it won't. You have to write for your own peace, healing, freedom, and not expect anything to change. If you think you're ending contact, cause they're going to come back and beg you to be in touch. It's, it's very unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. They may, they might come back to shame you into being in touch, but not to joyously celebrate your recovery and be in touch. Yeah. And I think when we over explain too, we're inviting that in, right? Like we're, we're inviting it in for them to try to convince us otherwise. How do you see scapegoat abuse affecting romantic relationships later on in life? That fundamental sense sometimes held unconsciously that there's something wrong with me. I'm deeply flawed. 
you can tend then to find partners that you think won't leave you. So you can tend to find partners who are really deeply flawed. (laughs) And, you know, you have a real low bar, you know, well, they don't hit me. (laughs) You know, you find someone more troubled than you unconsciously because you're afraid you're going to be left because you're so, you're so flawed. Mm -hmm. And if you're filled with that toxic shame, then you can be very vulnerable to someone who flatters you, a narcissist type, predatory type who makes you feel that you're wonderful. And that will usually change the minute you're committed. Mm. Literally that the wedding night, I hear those stories a lot. Literally you're married to a different person. It's like that old B movie. I I married a monster. I just had somebody on one of my listeners. I just had her share that exact same story. Yeah. Literally. Literally can happen on the wedding night when it's a true narcissist you end up with. So that's why, again, it's like you're tarred and feathered. You're walking around with all this tar on you and you're going to attract a lot of things are going to stick to you that you may not want. And and that tar you can think of as the toxic shame that comes from family scapegoating abuse. So you're going to attract all kinds of things you might not want to attract. Yeah, no kidding. One thing that I noticed for me was that I attracted people who... Um, who kept, who kept me compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. So like, I was like something to be shamed or embarrassed about. They didn't want people to know that they were dating me. Did that mirror your family dynamics? Family well, dynamics? yeah. In the sense that like, I was the, you know, the identified patient and problem. Yeah. And well, and, and more so it mimicked um, what I experienced in school, because in the seventh grade, I became like the school slut and I became the girl that no one was allowed to be friends with. So more so that like, I became the girl that it was uh, a shameful thing to be friends with, with me. We go to what we know. Mm -hmm. And often the scapegoating, I have a video on why do I get scapegoated wherever I go? That's the title. And I talk about how we can end up in different group systems and find ourselves in the same role and our marriages and partnerships, school work. And I have work. Yeah. I have a whole video on that. I think work too, in the sense that like, and I also think it's just because I didn't belong in those roles, but I would essentially just self-sabotage. Right. I used to give conferences on how we somehow find ourselves working in our family of origin at work. Oh yeah. We will somehow find our family of origin. It's almost like a universe trick. Mm -hmm. And even if we had no idea that the the work environment was exactly like our family system, we find ourselves there and we end up in our family of origin role. Yep. Absolutely. Every job I had, and there's no way I could have known this because I never met the CEO and every job I'd go into, there'd be an alcoholic absent CEO. And then there'd be a codependent caretaking uh, female underling who was actually running everything, everything. for the alcoholic boss. Every job I went to, I didn't do that consciously, but that's where the universe led me. I know it's hard not to believe that there's a higher power when shit like that happens without fail. I know. Being invited to see it and to heal it. Yeah, it's a gift, right? It's a gift. It can be if we look at it that way. What do you, through the research that you're doing, what is your, do you have like a goal? Like, what do you hope just to get a better understanding of things? Do you think that this can help with 
how we treat it, what? My goal is that scapegoating is recognized as its own form of abuse that can be related to a part of, but at times is completely separate from narcissistic abuse. I gave it a name. If someone else wants to name it something different and peer review research on it, I don't care. I'm not trademarking the name. I don't care who uses it. I already know though, this is, again, I've heard from thousands of people thanking me for giving this a distinct name. I'd love to see peer reviewed research on this. I'm getting old. I don't think I'm going back to do that dissertation. I welcome any graduate students listening to this for your master's or your PhD. Get in touch with me, contact at scapegoatrecovery.com. And I've been in touch with some students from Dr. Jennifer Freyd who came up with um, uh, betrayal trauma theory and DARVO, deny, attack, reverse victim offender. She has some students who are teaching now in Washington. They contacted me. I would just love to see someone do some peer-reviewed research on family scapegoating and recognize it as abuse and put my voice with those who are crying out for complex trauma to be in the DSM here. Absolutely. Um, anything else you want to plug? No. Are you accepting new clients? Probably not. I have a, a, a huge waiting list, huge, which, and I'm semi-retired. That's why I started YouTube because I'm able to get more people out to more people who may be on my waiting list, but I always invite people. If you're willing to wait, feel free again to contact me, contact at scapegoatrecovery.com. Amazing. Well, thank you. This is wonderful. And mm-hmm. thanks for having me. I loved it. It was great. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I know you heard something that could help you on your own journey. And you're welcome. Uh, Thanks again to Rebecca. That was awesome. I loved, loved, loved that. And here's a little behind the scenes. So before, you know, I always like to give it to you in the, in the end, if you're, you're my true fans, if you're listening to the very end, again, if you're listening to the very end and you haven't joined the Patreon, why the hell not? Um, so before we started recording, I asked Rebecca, I said, how open are you to sharing your own story? And she said that she'll share a little bit, but that she really doesn't like to because she's still you know, a practicing therapist. And I totally understand that. But she said, as soon as she retires, and she's getting close to it, guys, I think. She said that she will come back and she will bear it all. So as soon as I catch word that uh, she's retired, I will be pounding down her door to get her ass back on the podcast. (laughs) So please go check out the show notes for all of her stuff. I'm tired, guys. And I want to chill out and eat my Thai food and go to bed uh, on my little air mattress. Kiki's really, Kiki's like, what the fuck is going on in this room? But she's kind of into it. It's like, it's almost like we're in a new space. It's not, it's just an empty space. But she was, yeah, really excited. Um, So that's it. I love you guys all so very much. And I will see you on Saturday for shit till Saturday. And yeah, it's going to be super, super fun. Super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a good day. I promise.